Hello and welcome. My name is Kevin Featherstone and I'm a professor here in the European uh, Institute. We're here to discuss Greece's path from crisis to recovery. Our aim is to learn from the past and to define a better growth trajectory for the economy. Our starting point is the discussion of a new book co-edited by George Alakoskoufis and myself. The book is entitled Greece and the Euro from Crisis to Recovery. And it is published as an e-book available for you to download uh, free at any time from the web pages of the LSE and in particular the web pages of the LSE's Hellenic Observatory. We'll be displaying the link to the book at various times during the uh, discussion. Uh, and uh, we've published it as an e-book because uh, in these modern times it allows us to uh, get out the results quickly and perhaps have a broader international uh, reach. Why did we want to produce the book at this time? I think the book rests on uh, a number of uh, advantages for us. We believe it is timely. It takes account of Greece's initial exit from the uh, debt crisis, and it looks forward to what the future ag agenda might be. It's also a book with a broad perspective, comprising contributions from academics across a number of social science uh, disciplines. And as such, it examines the constraints and opportunities for Greece along a number of interrelated dimensions. Institutions and economic performance, macroeconomic policy, finance and growth, politics, institutions and administrative reforms, and international interdependence, euro area asymmetries and geopolitics. Those are the four sections of the edited uh, book. In total, there are some 16 chapters. And of course, we're very grateful for the contributions that a number of colleagues have made. It's a collaborative uh, effort, and it stems from a workshop uh, held here at the LSE, and then a much larger conference, which was held at the Fletcher School, Tufts University uh, in Massachusetts. And uh, we're very grateful uh, for the financial support provided to us for this project by the Onassis Foundation uh, in Greece. And let me thank my co-editor, George Alakoskoufis, uh, right away, because the project was originally his idea, and it has been a great pleasure to be working with him on the project. So the book is our background, but we're here to draw from the past and very much look forward uh, to future priorities. As I've said, the book covers a number of academic disciplines. Uh, and let me briefly mention that it gives a lot of attention to the questions, the challenges posed by public institutions uh, in Greece. And it discusses the lessons that can be drawn from their recent uh, performance. There are chapters addressing how weak institutions may hinder economic growth, the problems of effective regulatory agencies, and the monitoring of public finances, for example. In my own chapter, I analyze the research on the quality of institutions comparatively, and I highlight the similar trajectories that have been evident in recent times uh, in Southeast Europe, uh, Italy, and the Balkans in this respect. 
I highlight the question of public institutions because I suspect that may be coming up uh, later in our discussion. And I simply wanted to emphasize that in the book, there are a number of papers that focus on uh, the performance of public institutions uh, in Greece. But we're here this afternoon to focus primarily on the economy. And we have a great panel of speakers, a quartet of perhaps Greece's most senior economics uh, professors. Uh, Greek academics, including a Greek, well-known Greek Cypriot, uh, which uh, we're delighted to, uh, to welcome. So a Greek audience, our speakers will need very little introduction. But for the rest of you, let me say something about, about them in the order that they will be speaking to us. Yorgos Alagoskoufis is Professor of Economics at the Athens University of Economics and Business. Indeed, he is the current head of department at the He was Greece's Minister of Economics and Finance from 2004 to 2008. Eleni Lori Dandurou is also Professor of Economics in the same departments at Athens University of Economics and Business. And indeed, she was the previous head of departments at the She served as the Deputy Governor of the Bank of Greece from 2008 to 2014. Lucas Pabedimos was Vice President of the European Central Bank from 2002 to 2010. Before that, he was governor of Greece's central bank. He is a former prime minister of Greece, having headed a coalition government uh, between 2011 and 2012. Currently, he holds a prestigious chair in economics at the Academy of Athens. But let me suggest that the, um, uh, the most notable feature of his career was that he was the first chairman of the advisory board to the Hellenic Observatory here at the LSE. And I'm delighted that uh, we were able to work together in that period. Last but no, uh, not least, uh, Chris Pesarides holds the Regis Chair in Economics at the LSE and the Chair in European Studies at the University of Cyprus. In 2010, he won the Nobel Prize for Economics and he's received many awards, including a knighthood from the Queen here in the UK. So I'm sure you will agree, we have a stellar cast of uh, speakers. I'm going to invite each of them to give us their thoughts on Greece's economic uh, challenges and the future path. And I, we've invited them to speak for something between 10 and 15 minutes. As the discussion proceeds, you, the audience, can uh, share your comments on the discussion with us via Twitter. And we suggest the, uh, the Twitter hashtag, hashtag LSE Greece. You can also send us your questions through the Q&A facility, which should be at the bottom of your Zoom uh, screen. You can send us those questions at any time, and I will do my best at the end uh, to pose as many of those questions as I can. Let me say that we are recording today's event and we hope uh, to make it available for downloading in a few days time, on, uh, subject to any technical uh, difficulties. So that's my introduction and it gives me great pleasure to uh, start the proceedings and to invite my co-editor, Jorgos Alagoskoufis, to make his presentation. George. 
Thank you very much, Kevin. Uh, good afternoon uh, from, from myself to everybody, and uh, including the other panel participants. Uh, let me also say that it was a pleasure working with Kevin on uh, the workshop and the conference that uh, finally uh, culminated in the production of this book. We had, this, uh, we have a, we had a large number of uh, conference participants, uh, most of which uh, have uh, sent us uh, their contributions to be included in the book. And um, uh, among uh, those uh, with us uh, this afternoon is uh, Lucas Papadimos, who gave the, uh, the keynote speech to the, to the conference, uh, and uh, Eleni Lurie, who presented a very uh, nice paper on, uh, on the Greek financial system. We had other contributions and other uh, all colleagues, but we could not all be here uh, this afternoon. Uh, what I will uh, do in the remainder of, uh, of my time is I will uh, present the main, the, my, the main elements of my, of my own contribution to the ebook, uh, which are related to, um, to the experience of Greece before and after the Euro and, uh, and the prospects for the future. So allow me please to, to share uh, uh, some slides on, on, on this. Um, I hope that you can see, you can see the slides here, on, uh, which, which essentially contain the, the main points of my uh, own contribution to the volume and, uh, and my, my views, of course, on, uh, on, uh, on the, subject, uh, the subject of the book. So uh, the paper that, uh, that I have written for this volume analyzes the developments that led uh, the Greek economy to, to the crisis of 2010 and the Great Depression uh, that followed, and also discusses the preconditions for a sustained recovery after the current uh, COVID-19 crisis. Now, the main thesis of the paper, which is documented in the paper, is that the crisis of the post-2010 uh, period was building up during the previous uh, three decades, and that its, um, that its causes were not merely economic, they were also social, they were structural, they were institutional and, and political. Um, if you look at the fiscal imbalances that, were, that, that Greece suffered from uh, in, in the 30 years before the crisis, these fiscal imbalances were created in the 1980s, they were not adequately addressed by the convergence policy of the 1990s. Uh, and the same, and, and of course, they were not adequately uh, addressed after Greece joined the Euro. Uh, and the same happened with the, with, the, with the problem of low international competitiveness, which is what was the main, uh, the second main problem of the Greek economy after it joined the Euro. The low international competitiveness uh, was further was further uh, further deteriorated during the 1990s and and during the after Greece joined the euro uh, in the year 2001 and uh, all these uh, problems were further exacerbated by the failure to promote the necessary structural reforms in Greece and one of the questions is why did the greek political system fail and and the greek governments fail to to address those problems uh, in a timely manner. 
So Greece, um, uh, it, uh, this is one of my of the main points of the paper, is that the Greece's accession to the euro area um, was uh, in the light of major structural and fiscal imbalances and low and deteriorating international competitiveness, something which led to the gradual destabilization of its external position after it entered the euro area uh, and the steep rise in uh, external in indebtedness, which was the main cause uh, of the crisis to, of 2010. Now, there is uh, some discussion on, on how this lopsided adjustment and the inadequacy, inadequacy of the reforms um, was, uh, was due to domestic political and social constraints, both before and after uh, Euro area entry. Uh, the paper also discusses the institutional weaknesses of the Euro area itself although it does not focus on, on, uh, on, this, uh, on this topic. There is another paper in the volume, which I have co-written with uh, Laurent Jacques of uh, Tuft University, the Fletcher School, which deals with the institutional weaknesses of the Euro area itself. Um, so essentially the external imbalances ultimately led to the external decision of 2010, the imposition of the economic adjustment programs and the Great Depression of the 2010s. And the, the paper the, finally explores the prerequisites for a sustained recovery of the Greek economy within the Euro area. And I have to stress this. I, I firmly believe that, that staying in the Euro area is a must for Greece, of course. Um, so once the global economic crisis um, um, is behind us, um, there will, there will still be a need for wide-ranging reforms in Greece, and the wide-ranging reforms remain uh, the top priority. I'm sure the other speakers will speak uh, a lot more about, about those wide-ranging reforms that are required. Now, uh, let, me, let me show one picture which shows the predicament of Greece since uh, 1974. Um, this is a picture that shows the evolution of, of real GDP in Greece, per capita GDP, sorry, this is real total GDP, and the potential GDP, as, as the potential GDP is, is calculated by the European uh, Commission. This is in billion 2010 euros in a logarithmic scale. It shows that uh, in the mid-70s, Greece was growing quite fast. Then it entered the period of of relative stagnation until the early 1990s. Then in the context of trying to join the Euro and after it joined the Euro area, it grew quite, quite more quickly. Uh, but then uh, when the Great Depression, uh, when the uh, international uh, recession hit in 2008-2009 and uh, the Great Depression that followed Greece's GDP fell significantly. Now, for many, many years, Greece's GDP was above potential. So essentially, this is an indication of, of a quite expansionary monetary and fiscal policies, aggregate demand policies. But after, of course, the crisis, Greece's GDP was below potential, showing that we had a, a, a period, and, and this is what everybody agrees was the cause of the, of the Great uh, Depression. We had a period of very tight and very uh, austere um, aggregate demand policies. Now, 
in, in the paper, I distinguish between four periods of destabilization and inadequate reforms. Uh, they roughly correspond to the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, and 2010s. The, the 80s were, was, the, was the first period of economic destabilization. It was a period of uh, prolonged, uh, excessively expansionary um, monetary and fiscal policy. Uh, also reforms that, uh, that led to, not reforms, but, uh, but policies that led to the expansion of the role of the state in Greece. And, uh, and also fiscal destabilization. This, um, this, the, the policies of the 80s were the policies that, that Greek uh, governments have been trying to reverse since then, not with a lot of success, I'm afraid. Then um, the paper discusses the second cycle of the 90s, which was the cycle of lopsided adjustment. And why do I say lopsided adjustment? Because the adjustment of the Greek economy was not. Uh, pursued in, in terms of uh, fiscal, uh, fiscal um, adjustment and, uh, and, and other structural reforms, the main policy that was used during the 1990s and the policy that, that led to Greece's participation in the euro area was monetary policy, which was uh, quite, uh, quite tight, was tightened significantly during the 1990s. This created... Uh, a disinflation. The disinflation was was quite successful in the 1990s. It led to a reduction in nominal interest rates. The reduction in nominal interest rates helped the fiscal adjustment because the the government did not have to pay so much in in terms of interest payments on the already high public debt. But but the other policies were not were not helpful enough. So the adjustment was not helped by either fiscal policy as much as it, as it should. And, and also the fact that you, you had a disinflation in the light of, uh, of relatively generous wage increases led to, to a deterioration in Greece's international competitiveness. During the 1990s, Greece's international competitiveness deteriorated significantly. Then the third cycle, the cycle that started after, roughly after Greece joined the Euro area was the cycle of Euro euphoria. This was a cycle where um, real interest rates fell significantly because of, of uh, the devaluation risk disappeared. And um, uh, there was excessive borrowing both from the public sector and the private sector because of the low interest rates. There was a, an imbalance between investment and, um, and savings, which led to the deterioration of the current account. And this was the period during which the main external imbalances developed uh, since uh, a little before and, uh, and during the first 10 years of Greece's participation in the Euro area. And finally, we have the cycle of the Great Depression, which is analyzed uh, uh, in detail in the paper, which is what happened after the crisis hit and uh, the, uh, analyzes the policies that were followed in order to, to uh, correct the macroeconomic imbalances uh, that, had, uh, that had developed. Um, so the analysis suggests that um, the sudden stop in international lending and the crisis of 2010 were anything but, but sudden. Uh, the, they took place, of course, in the aftermath of the international financial crisis. It was a, a classic um, international debt crisis. 
but but the, the the problem the problems were mainly due to the persistent macroeconomic and structural imbalances of the Greek economy that had accumulated during the previous uh, cycles. Now, after entry to the euro area, and this is a, paper, a point that the paper makes, Greece faced a stark policy dilemma because it had lost monetary, the, the tool of monetary policy and exchange rate policy. Uh, it faced um, the only instru macroeconomic instrument that was left was fiscal policy. Uh, but because of international, the, the low international competitiveness that Greece already had, attempts to address the external imbalances through a restrictive fiscal policy would lead to recession. So governments avoided them like, uh, like uh, the plague. Uh, and uh, attempts to avoid the fiscally induced recession led to the persistence of external imbalances. And Greece, like other economies in the periphery of the Euro area, was caught up in this dilemma. I call it the Mandelian dilemma between internal and external balance. If you try to correct uh, unemployment through an expansion of fiscal policy, you create external problems. If you try to correct the external problems, you, you, you create unemployment. And that, that was the main dilemma that, uh, that uh, Greece faced um, after it joined the euro area. Uh, but the deeper, the deeper causes of the crisis um, are, have to do with politics and we have to do with, um, the, with society and the, the attitudes that, um, that uh, prevailed after the restoration of democracy in 1974. Successive Greek governments essentially kept postponing the necessary adjustments, shifting the associated political cost um, to the future. And this was perhaps the key factor that helped destabilize the Greek economy and create the conditions that ultimately led to, to the 2010 crisis. And undoubtedly, of course, um, and despite the fact that the imbalances and structural wounds of the Greek economy are, are the, were the key reason for the crisis. Um, the significant structural and institutional weakness of the euro area itself helped, um, helped this process because, because it was not only Greece that faced those uh, external imbalances, but also all the, uh, to a lesser extent, all the areas of the periphery or the countries of the periphery of the euro area. Okay, now, uh, what are the main institutional weaknesses and structural uh, problems that, that remain in Greece today after the adjustment program of the 2010s? Uh, the paper con concentrates on six areas. I will just uh, list them. I will not go into details. The first is the functioning of the markets for goods and services. There are still significant problems in, in the functioning of the markets for goods and services, uh, low, low um, competition, um, uh, difficulty of doing business, and so on and so forth. Then there is the labor market and collective bargaining, which, uh, which have uh, not been reformed in a sustainable uh, manner, I don't think. There is the problems of the financial system, which became worse before and during the crisis. There is the operation of the public sector, which is a perennial problem of throughout the last 40 years the tax and welfare system and the education system. And there is a, there is a quite, quite a, um, an extensive discussion of those weaknesses in the paper itself, but I don't have the time to, to go over them um, uh, at this presentation. Uh, 
So what are the prerequisites for the sustained recovery of the Greek economy? And this is where I will, I will stop. Um, the, in my view, the first is, uh, is uh, that immediately after the pandemic crisis is, is behind us, Greece has to adopt a, a reform program for an export-led sustained recovery. Uh, that is reforms that will facilitate the sustained recovery uh, without excessive borrowing from abroad as, uh, as happened uh, during the 2000, the, after Greece entered the Euro area. So the recovery must be export-led. It should not be accompanied by a further widening of the external deficit as happened in the decade after joining the Euro area. Then the second uh, prerequisite, I think, is that every effort should be made to reform institutions and make the Greek institutions both economic and political and make them more compatible with the requirements of Euro area participation. Um, as I already said, it is my view that Greece entered the Euro area prematurely, that is before having tackled its key macroeconomic imbalances, but the recovery should be pursued within the Euro area. It's unthinkable for me, for Greece to even contemplate you know, leaving the Euro area to make life easier, it will not make life easier. Exiting the Euro area is not a solution. It poses great risks of economic collapse in the process of transition to a de facto weaker national currency. And in the medium term, the risk of a return to the economic instability of the 1980s is, uh, is, is very serious. Now, because of the political problems that, that, that appeared uh, in the last 30 years and uh, stopped Greece from pursuing uh, reforms, a minimum of political consensus is needed in, in any program for a recovery of the Greek economy. So the program must be formulated as consensually as possible. It should be endorsed by the po widest possible range of political forces in the country because consensus is a necessary condition for continuity, for credibility, and for the effectiveness of any medium-term reform program. And the same consensus, of course, is required for putting forward Greek national positions for necessary reforms at the level of the euro area. And there is a fourth requirement, which is, is beyond Greece, that, that is reforms at the national level may not suffice if there are no further reforms at the euro area level as well, because the euro area still has and some problems. The pandemic has induced some reforms, which, which are very welcome. But I feel that more is needed in the area of uh, fiscal federalism, that is the mutualization of fiscal policy to a certain extent, and the recognition that the ECB should be able to act as a lender of last resort during financial and sovereign debt crisis. And this is where, where I will stop, Kevin. Thank you very much. Thank you, George, very much indeed. That gives us a, a nice overview of the recent past and suggestions for um, the key uh, parameters going uh, forward. Let me invite Eleni Lori Dendunu to make her presentation, please. First, uh, I'd like to thank the editors for inviting me to participate in the launch uh, of, of their uh, book. The, the book Greece and the Euro from Crisis to Recovery, carefully edited by Alogos Kufis and Featherstone, is the product, as you heard, of uh, a workshop in December 2018 at the LSE and a conference in April 2019 at uh, Tufts University. Although these two events took place after Greece exited the third adjustment program, they were before the COVID crisis. 
A new unexpected challenge appeared in 2020 with the pandemic radically changing the background uh, on which policy measures and growth scenarios were based. Understanding the extent of the new crisis, the editors gave the authors the opportunity to revise and update their contributions until mid-2021, as this last emergency was posing new threats for the Greek economy and society. A defining characteristic of the book is that the editors have invited a large number of scholars from different fields of social sciences to contribute, giving the book a broad focus covering economics, institutions, society, and politics. Thus, a serious and inclusive debate about the past deeds and the future actions of the country is taking place in these pages. The broad coverage of the book brings to mind Maynard Keynes in his Requirements for an Economist, where he defined how a good economist should be. He wrote, no part of a man's nature or his institutions must lie outside his regard. He must understand symbols and speak in words. He must study the present in the light of the past for the purposes of the future. The book follows exactly that advice. Another noteworthy characteristic of the book launched today is the choice of the editors to produce it in the form of an e-book, which means that the book can be broadly accessed in a much shorter time than with any hard form production. So we have a book which provides us with a broad, profound and timely analysis and enriches the discussion for intelligent and efficient policymaking urgently needed to propel Greece forward in the post-financial crisis, post-pandemic era. Our country seems on course to exit a 10-year period of consecutive crisis, which have taken their toll on growth, GDP, employment, social cohesion, and even on demographics. Maybe it is too early to claim definitive victory as uncertainty looms, but the recent figures are encouraging. As growth returns after the disastrous 2020, with expectations for GDP in 2021 to exceed 8% and to soon reach its 2019 value, and with unemployment falling, Greece needs not only crisis management, but vision and plan. It needs to set ambitious targets based on a deep understanding of the roots of the dysfunctions, the misfires, the problems of the past, and of the optimal way forward. Greece 2.0 plan aspires to bring about most of these changes. The Greek state securities are close to reaching investment grade again, and the positive outlook expressed by many rating agencies needs to be supported by appropriate investment decisions, which will improve the efficiency of capital allocation towards a sustainable growth model. This is an ideal time to leave uncertainty behind and make change happen by design. As Mrs. Lagarde says, Europe seems decided not to allow another disastrous austerity round. Fiscal rules are eased and public spending has kept economies alive. The Next Generation EU Recovery Program provides a decisive break from the past and a massive opportunity for growth, especially beneficial for over-indebted countries like Greece. By mobilizing an astonishing amount of resources, which together with the multi-annual financial framework exceed 1.8 trillion euro and for Greece exceed 80 billion euro until 2027, much more than its share in European GDP or population, this is a once-in-a-generation investment opportunity and should not be misused.
it seems Europe has decided to aggressively increase GDP, the denominator in the debt-to-GDP ratio, using the jointly issued and acquired funds and not impose another austerity plan by suppressing the nominator as it did during the financial and sovereign debt crisis. Such a large boost to investment, if correctly directed to produce the necessary structural reforms, will create the conditions for opportunity and prosperity. The President of the Commission, Mrs. von der Leyen, maintained that such a heavy investment plan should shape a new world served by an economy that cuts emissions, boosts competitiveness, reduces energy poverty, creates rewarding jobs and improves quality of life. A world where we use digital technology to build a healthier, greener and more equal society. The European economy is expected to grow by 5% in 2021 and almost the same next year, more than anticipated six months earlier. Of course, the growth outlook is uncertain and highly reliant on the evolution of the pandemic. High growth is expected to be accompanied by a temporary increase in inflation, 2002 expected to reach 2,002% in this year. As the president of the ECB, Mrs. Lagarde, explained, after a highly unusual recession, the euro area is going through a highly atypical recovery, leading to high growth, but also to supply bottlenecks, appearing unusually early in the economic cycle, causing inflation to rebound as the economy opens. Financing investment to increase the supply of the goods and services most demanded especially tradable goods, achieve scale and increase productivity, will help reduce inflation created by the combination of supply-side COVID disruptions with strong demand in the post-vaccination phase. Profound structural changes have already taken place. For example, McKinsey estimates that the pandemic has accelerated the process of digitalization in Europe by seven years. Climate change problems have become easily observable and deeply felt, convincing policymakers to direct resources towards green transition and sustainability. So the major guidelines for investment and growth are set for all European countries. What Greece should also aim at, following the analysis of the book, is enhancing training and education, especially of the digital sort, boost technology advances, especially those that increase competitiveness and wages and incomes, improve institutions and their efficiency, and reduce distressing and counterproductive administrative burden and red tape. Finally, as finance is necessary to achieve all these goals, Greece should also preserve a healthy banking sector and sustain accommodative bank lending conditions in order to finance the promising new direction of the economy. Thank you. Thank you, Eleni, very much indeed. Uh, uh, and thank you for your uh, kind words, but also for the clarity of your presentation. That's uh, great for our audience. Let me invite uh, Professor Lucas Papadimos to make his presentation, please. Uh, I think you need to unmute yourself, uh, Lucas. Sorry, uh, Lucas, could you unmute yourself, please? Thank you. Well, I was thanking you for the invitation and the introduction. And I was saying that it's with great pleasure that I participate in this event uh, for launching the book on Greece and the Euro and participating with distinguished colleagues and friends. Uh, 
Now, I was invited <coughs> in uh, my presentation to focus on my own contribution to this conference uh, and, uh, and the book, in which I explore uh, and examine, first of all, several issues pertaining to the performance of the Greek economy since the launch of the Euro, and explore a number of challenges that are going to be faced, that are being faced and will be faced by Greece in the Eurozone in the future. More specifically, I address three questions. The first was, it was the adoption of the Euro by Greece a mistake in light of the country's severe and protracted economic crisis, persisting structural weaknesses and remaining fiscal imbalances. The second question is how can Greece achieve strong, sustained and equitable growth within the Eurozone in an environment of global economic transformation, rapid technological change and economic and remaining fiscal problems. And finally, what institutional reforms, this is the third question I'm addressing, and other actions are necessary for the Eurozone to successfully overcome current and future economic and political challenges and establish a genuine EMU against the background of persisting populism, nationalism, and Euroscepticism. Now, these are many and challenging issues, and I shall try to provide concise answers to the second and third questions, which is looking forward. So will Greece be able to achieve strong, sustained and equitable growth within the Eurozone in the future? And I think the answer to this question is well known, and I think also was noted by George, primarily depends on the policies to be implemented and other actions to be taken at the national level, but it also partly depends on the progress to be made at the European level in creating a genuine EMU. Focusing first on what needs to be done at the national level, I think it's important to keep in mind that the growth objective, strong, durable, equitable growth, will have to be achieved in view several constraining factors, notably the constraints on economic policy imposed by the country's high public debt, and importantly, the constraints on the economy stemming from the external environment, which, as I said, is characterized by the ongoing global economic transformation and rapid technological change. Now, very briefly, on fiscal policy, I think the size of the Greek public debt, despite the major restructuring in 2012 and various debt relief measures that have been enacted in recent years, continues to be a burden on fiscal policy. And although the public debt is relatively manageable, the servicing of public debt is manageable both in the near term and over the coming decade, it is not considered sustainable over the long run unless we achieve stronger and durable economic growth in the future. So at present, fiscal policy cannot be employed to stimulate aggregate demand significantly and sustainably. Fiscal policy and fiscal reforms should be designed and implemented so as to promote potential growth, the supply side of the economy, through an efficient and competitive tax system by raising public investment relative to consumption, and also fiscal policy and reforms can play a role in addressing increased income inequality. Now, the main argument that I make in this part of my contribution is that the main Indeed, the only way to achieve strong, durable, and sustained and inclusive growth 
is to enhance the international competitiveness of the economy, but in a broad sense of the world, not only re related to price and wage competitiveness. For a country's competitiveness is a complex and multidimensional concept, defined by many elements. It is determined by the macroeconomic environment, the country's institutions, human capital and infrastructure, and generated by all those factors that determine the total productivity in the economy, which among other things include the effectiveness and soundness of the financial system, as well as the contribution of technological advances and innovation. Now, at the beginning of the Greek crisis in 2010, the degree of competitiveness of Greece was very low and reflected, among other things, adverse macroeconomic conditions, inefficient market structures, and ineffective institution function. Following the long and arduous fiscal and structural adjustment over the past 10 years, the fiscal position of the country has improved significantly. Competitiveness, as measured by unit labor cost, has been fully restored to its 2001 level, not 2010 level, while price competitiveness and the quality of, pro of produced goods and services have also improved. And these developments have contributed to the increase in real exports and the recovery of the economy, of course, before the recent pandemic shock. Nevertheless, other determinants of competitiveness, such as the availability and cost of financing, the cost of energy, the functioning of many institutions, the effectiveness of public administrations have not essentially improved. And for this reason, Greece's competitiveness in the broad sense of the concept has not increased significantly compared to the very low level in 2010 at the beginning of the crisis. Now, this conclusion emerges, and I examine this in the chapter, from information provided by several available indices of international competitiveness as well as their components, and which shows that Greece's position remains unfavorable despite recent improvements in a number of areas. And I find particularly disappointing is the low ranking of Greece, both globally and relative to the other Eurozone countries with regard to, the to its innovation capability and its business dynamism. In a more detailed assessment of the contribution of other determinants of the broader measure of competitiveness supports the conclusion the international competence in Greece has been characterized by considerable inertia. The improvement has been slow and small during the past 10 years. Now, I'm convinced that the broader concept, as I mentioned before, of competitiveness is of crucial importance in determining the conditions that will foster not only higher long-term growth, but improved social welfare. And this conclusion is supported by available empirical evidence showing that economies that have been more competitive broadly, number one, have achieved higher income levels over time. Second, have been more resilient to shocks, to adverse shocks. And third, something that I think is not generally appreciated, have been associated with superior rates of growth of human development and inclusive development, that is more equitable growth. And pertinent political evidence is presented in this chapter both to support these three general statements, but also by references to the case of Greece. Now, the general conclusion that results from this assessment of the empirical evidence is that there is still, despite the progress made, clear and urgent need to introduce deeper 
and broader reforms to improve the functioning of institutions and markets, enhance human capital, and develop an effective innovation ecosystem. Now, a lot has been written on this topic, and most recently and notably by Professor Pisaridis and his committee. But let me briefly refer to my own assessment that was presented at the LSE Fletcher Conference in April 2019, when I noted that priority should be given to the following reforms in six areas, which are aimed to, first, to improve the effectiveness of public administration and more generally of the public sector, so as to enhance the quality and the services provided and reduce bureaucracy. Second, to strengthen the functioning and foster the development of the financial system, so as to increase the availability and reduce the cost of bank credit to the private sector, especially the SMEs, but also to promote alternative forms of financing investment and the activities of innovative firms. Third, to revamp the tax system, so as to make it simpler, internationally competitive, more equitable and growth-friendly. Fourth, increase the efficiency of the judicial system, so as to speed up the administration of justice, which inter alia will encourage investment. Fifth, improve the quality of the educational system and of vocational training, so as to strengthen the knowledge and skills which are required for the new technology-driven economy. And finally, emphasize the need to develop an appropriate institutional research an entrepreneurial environment to develop an ecosystem that will support innovation and foster a new dynamism in the economy. Of course, there are other reforms that are important, but what I would like to emphasize is that it's essential now to overcome the inherent inertia, the pressures of vested interests, and the occasional myopic political considerations that have prevented the implementation reforms in the past. And this is something that George stressed, how the implementation of reforms over the last 20 years was delayed for a number of reasons. Now, coming to the last part of my remarks, as I said, needless to say, the performance and the prospects of the Greek economy, as well as the design and effectiveness of policy strategy and reform, will also very much depend on future developments in the Eurozone economy, and importantly, on further steps to be taken towards the creation of a genuine economic and monetary union. Now, 20 years after the creation of the Euro and the establishment of the Economic and Monetary Union, and by the way, when we had the Fledger Conference, it was the 20th anniversary of the establishment of the, of the, of the Euro area, it is, fair to say that, it is fair to say that EMU has broadly accomplished this mission as defined by the objectives of the treaty. But having said that, I believe that the Euro's 20th birthday was not an occasion for unconditional, joyous celebration. Macroeconomic, price, and financial stability was overall protected, but some of the implemented policies entailed substantial economic and social costs, particularly in some countries, including Greece. Moreover, during the darkest years of the Eurozone crisis, the European Monetary Union experienced intense pressures and faced unprecedented challenges, and its cohesion and stability, economic, social and political, were severely tested. 
So looking ahead, I think the Eurozone as a whole will be able to achieve stronger, sustained and balanced growth and will be able to deal with potential future crises more effectively than in the past, if and only if it takes further meaningful steps towards completing and reinforcing the institutional architecture of EMU, how? By developing the economic pillar and by strengthening its political foundations. How can this be done and will it be done? As we know, over the past few years, a number of proposals have been addressed by uh, European institutions, academics, special committees regarding the completion and reinforcement of the EMU. Nevertheless, until very recently, very little progress has been made in implementing most of these recommendations. And I think the fundamental reason for the delay or procrastination is political. Primarily, understandably, because progress towards the establishment of a genuine EMU requires a transfer of further national sovereignty to European bodies or institutions and may involve more, in quote, burden sharing between member states. Now, in my view, it is imperative to enact reforms that are actually needed to address current and, I would say, likely future challenges not only in order to improve the growth performance of the Eurozone, which is the primary objective, but also to reduce income equality within individual countries, facilitate economic convergence between member states, and protect financial and macroeconomic stability effectively and efficiently, especially in the event of a major asymmetric shock. So to this end, I believe that a number of steps should be taken in the near term and a number of other actions and conditions uh, should follow over a somewhat longer horizon. Over the near term, and I think this has been stressed by others, of course, the three steps is the completion of the banking union through the creation of a single European deposit insurance scheme and strengthening the single resolution mechanism. Second, the creation of a deeper and faster integration of capital markets so that firms in all member states can have better access to sources of financing other than bank credit. And third, importantly, to reform the institutional policy framework in the Eurozone that will make it possible to implement economic and fiscal measures with a European orientation in order to achieve European-wide policy objectives. Now, the reform of the institutional policy framework is especially important, but also politically difficult. It will allow to make progress towards a better coordination of national fiscal policies and the establishment of some form of fiscal union in the Eurozone. Now, this is a difficult issue and taking the political challenges associated with the creation of a fiscal union and more generally the completion of the MU will require coordinated policy actions on several fronts, but also the establishment of appropriate conditions that will support such a fundamental change. I think the conditions are important and I have no time, however, to elaborate on them. So I will very briefly refer to the kind of reforms that should contribute to a more effective and a better, a genuine EMU. Reforms that are necessary and meet conditions that will be supported by the European public and by the majority of member states 
include the setting up of a microeconomic stabilization mechanism in the Eurozone, and in particular, the setting up of a European system of unemployment insurance, which would help reduce the distributional effects of major asymmetric shocks. Second, the second, second is the further strengthening of the program for investments that started as a Juncker program in physical and human capital and how this can be done by increasing the available resources, broadening the sources of financing and the range of eligible activities in order to meet, and I think this is important for acceptance of European-wide objectives. Third is the establishment of a European monetary fund. Another important reform is the issue of Eurobonds Euro for financing par-European investment projects or common public goods. And possibly, this is a separate objective, for financing a designated part of public debt of Eurozone member states. So the last part is the one that is more controversial. I think the first part is not only controversial, but has hardly been achieved now as a result of the establishment of the recovery fund. And finally, the creation, a very difficult one politically, of a Eurozone budget. Now, more general, I'm finishing with this, a more integrated economic and fiscal policy in the European and the EU is becoming progressively vital for the attainment of broader shared objectives in other areas, notably in defense and security, in managing migration-related issues, and in establishing appropriate conditions to make the EU a world leader in the new knowledge economy and the ongoing fourth international revolution, industrial revolution, which, as you know, is driven by technology and innovation which is currently dominated by products developed and produced in the US and in China. I believe that the geopolitical risks threatening Europe, the evolving position of the US with regard to the responsibilities of European countries in NATO, and the terrorist attacks and other security threats have underscored the importance and the need to strengthen defense and security arrangements in the EU on the basis of a closer and structured cooperation of member states with specific activities, with the ultimate goal being the establishment of a European Defence Union over the coming decade. Now, you may think that this is a very unrealistic or perhaps very ambitious object, but let me note the following. First of all, without elaborating, a number of important steps have already been taken in 2017, and the prospects I think in the whole are more favorable than we think. And I would like to note here that I find absolutely remarkable that according to a number of recent surveys, which you can see in the Eurobarometer, the citizens in almost, EU, in almost all EU countries include defense and security in their top three priorities. And three-fourths of European citizens approve the principle of a common defense and security policy among EU, not only Eurozone, but among EU member states. Now, in concluding, I would like to say two words on what are the implications for Greece of deeper European integration. I think a conclusion that emerges from what I have just said is that the creation of a genuine EMU and more generally the completion of the European project will serve the national interest and can be expected to entail significant benefits for Greece by promoting growth, 
by contributing to social welfare and cohesion and by strengthening national security. Hence, Greece should support the establishment of a genuine EMU and should endeavor to play a leading role in the European integration process. However, in order to contribute to the attainment of these goals and reap the benefits for a more complete and balanced EMU, Greece will have to continue on the path of economic recovery and reform, secure fiscal sustainability, strengthen its financial system, and improve, as I stressed earlier, its international competitiveness. And in this way, it will also respond in practice to the view that has been emphasized by many in many countries in the debate over the future of Europe, that it is essential for the success of the European project, that the unity and solidarity it will entail, the greater unity and solidarity that it will entail, should be combined with the contact of a responsible and effective economic policy at the national level. Mr. Chairman, I know I have exceeded the time limits, but if you give me one more minute, I want to make two points of general interest, that, of political interest, that relate also to what George said earlier, and relate to the outlook for Greece and the Euro. In Greece, I believe that the implementation of the appropriate GO strategy and reform agenda will succeed in achieving the objectives of strong, sustained growth and equitable growth, if in addition to the policy actions previously mentioned, we reach a broad political and social consensus on the primary objectives and the appropriate policy framework for making the Greek economy more competitive globally. This in turn requires that we develop social values and we develop institutions that will support the introduction of fundamental reforms to improve the country's competitiveness. Hence, what I believe it is essential that we focus not only on the features of the necessary reforms and economic policies that they have been outlined by many, by Professor Pisaridis and others, but also in creating the social, political, and institutional environment required for their effective implementation. And as George noted, it has not been possible to create such an environment over many years, but looking ahead, I'm hopeful that we will learn from experience and overcome obstacles and master the will that has proved difficult to master in the past. And finally, with regard to the future of the Europe, we have to be realistic, it can be expected that the load leading to the creation of a genuine EMU is likely to be long and may be uneven, primarily, as I stressed, because the contact of a common economic policy and the establishment of some form of fiscal union in the Eurozone will involve decisions that are essentially political. Consequently, the completion of EMU requires strengthening the political foundations of the single currency. But let me also recall that historical evidence since the introduction of the Euro 20 years ago says that on the whole, progress has been made in completing and reinforcing EMU, although slowly, step by step, and often under the pressure of extraordinary circumstances that is under the pressure of current or emerging threats to the stability of the viability of the euro. So I will conclude with an optimistic note that I'm reasonably confident 
that despite the challenges being faced, the political difficulties will eventually be overcome and progress will be made towards a genuine and better EMU. Because I believe that the majority of European citizens understand the importance and the advantages of a stronger and more integrated Europe. And since the conference was held, as you know, the expectation that I just expressed that further progress would eventually be made towards the completion of EMU and the more integrated economic policy framework has come true to some extent in response to the public health and economic crisis brought about by the coronavirus pandemic. But this is something maybe we can discuss later on in the course of this event. Thank you and apologize for not for exceeding somewhat the limit. I say somewhat because also George exceeded. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. That's uh, wonderfully authoritative and you've linked the domestic, the European and the international. So uh, thank you for uh, sketching that uh, for us. Christopher, uh, Chris Pesaridis, thanks. Okay, thank you very much, um, Kevin. I'm going to be very brief because um, everything has been said anyway by two, three excellent presentations before me. And because there are some very interesting questions in Q&A, and I hope we get the chance to uh, discuss some of those. Uh, I'm going to focus entirely on uh, Greece and um, address some general issues that uh, are discussed at some length in the report that we produced recently for the Greek government. And uh, also refer to the um, uh, RRF, the Recovery Fund, and what we can uh, hope for. Now, our, our starting point, and this is in response to many people who tell us, well, you know, so many, there have been so many attempts at reform, so many reports, uh, and yet Greece is still um, down at the bottom of the European Union rankings. So why are you optimistic and all that? Well, in, in my view, looking at uh, Greece uh, with um, kind of one leg inside and one outside, if you like, because, I mean, I am Greek and I feel Greek, but... Uh, I was born in Cyprus and living in England most of the time, um, is that I see a country that uh, has enormous potential. Uh, it's got um, a, um, a well-trained labor force. Uh, it's got natural resources. Uh, it's got uh, many good entrepreneurs. And you see Greek names, uh, foreign companies and domestic. It's got a socially liberal population, which is uh, important within the EU, it's a member of a very big market. And um, all those features that I described, of course, characterize the um, uh, northern, um, uh, the small northern European countries that very often you hear that Greece will become like them, you know, Netherlands, Denmark, Sweden, and so on. But Greece has something that they don't have, which is uh, its natural beauty and natural and, um, and um, heritage. So if you, if you add all that together, you know, if a Martian came down and you gave a description of what's the uh, basis, the basic features of, of a country, it should tell you, you know, this country should be at the absolute top and that's where everyone will want to live. And yet there's a brain drain. And you might ask uh, why. And I, think, and, and I think the reasons are, are political and, and administrative. In fact, it, it was said by previous speakers, but um, less directly that I'm putting it now, uh, you know, for example, I, I was quite interested in uh, Lucas's 
six uh, reforms, five, sorry, five, six, <laughs> six reforms uh, of um, priority. And, and in fact, they, they, they all concern uh, administrative and political matters. They, you might say the financial system reform is, is economic, but in fact, the reason the financial system got to the point we have, I suspect, is because of political interventions and, and such like. Uh, you know, when you look at public administration, how to improve efficiency, simplify the tax system, efficiency of judicial system, institutional environment for research, quality of education, all, all these concern what you might describe as non-economic policies. Now, there have been reforms, of course, in response to MOUs, and um, but they haven't, but they haven't, they, are, they haven't been implemented to the extent that they should have had, or they haven't had their impact. And if you ask um, why, I, I think there is a simple answer to that. It's because there hasn't been any ownership of the reforms. There, has, there hasn't been any commitment to reform in the sense that we're going to reform because after the reform, we're going to be better off. It was more like we're going to reform because we need the help from someone up there and that someone up there says we must do those reforms. <laughs> Ownership of reforms is, is absolutely essential. And the reason I'm optimistic this time, in fact, made much more than previously, and after all, if I wasn't, I wouldn't have put in so much time and my name on a report if, if, if it was going to fail. The, the reason is that, is that I think there is now ownership of reform. If you read, for example, the submission of the Greek government, if you see what, they're, what they've been saying, the submission to the RRF, and so on. There is ownership. They want to own the reforms because the country would be better off after it. Of course, there's going to be a lot of opposition from vested interests, but it's not going to be easy anyway because the reforms need to be very broadly based. There is hardly anything that uh, doesn't need uh, um, uh, uh, some kind of uh, updating, modernizing, re reforming. And, and so on, but but there is commitment uh, uh, to do it. It's a very ambitious program that they submitted. They got um, sufficient uh, money uh, for it to to carry it out. I'll say a little a, a little bit more about that in a minute. Before that, though, I, I'd like to say if if you ask me, you know, what is is there anything that needs to be done now? You know, tell me the single most important thing that needs to be done. I would say that there is no such thing because there is complementarity between reforms. I can give you a very good example. Greece is, is lagging behind terribly badly in the, in the um, engagement of women in the labor force. There's a lot of talent in the female population of Greece that is not being made use of in, in the best way that it could be matched to, 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 to its talents. There is a clear case of mismatch. Now, which, whose outcome is that not enough women go out and, and get jobs. Um, and if you ask, uh, how can we encourage them to do that? You know, it's an economic policy. Think of it wholly as an economist. How do we increase the supply of female labor in Greece? Well, you need a social policy. You need to provide uh, better uh, childcare systems, uh, better care for uh, elderly people, because that's part of what we call home production. We still work, but it's done in the home. And... Um, it falls on women, whether it's culturally or because they have the comparative advantage in emotional things and looking after people. It's, it's, it's really neither here nor there. 
the present context. What's, the, what's important was the data. And women do those things, but maybe their talents are not, uh, are better suited out in the labor market, at least some of them, and others could become professional to look after children at home. Well, that's a social policy that the government needs to pursue, and we, we provided very detailed uh, recommendations of how that could be done. Um, if, you, if you ask me, however, um, what would make me feel most optimistic about uh, Greece if I see it being, um, if, if, if I see it happening on the ground, I, I, I would say that there is no doubt that that's the productivity of the Greek labor force. Greek, Greeks work very long hours. They work longer hours than the Germans, in fact, much more, much longer than the Germans, and much longer than the than the Dutch, who have the lowest um, hours of work per uh, person in the labor force. Whereas Greece has the longest in the European Union. It has the longest hours of work and the least productive hours of work, and that's what you need to tackle. Because that gives rise to a vicious circle. If you are if you are not productive at work, then you are not competitive, as Lucas said um, very eloquently. And if you are not competitive, you are not exporting, and therefore you are not taking advantage of economies of scale, which you need in today's technologies. You are not taking advantage of the huge market in the European Union, the biggest market in the world that you have access to, and. Um, you're not taking advantage of technology and new technologies that you need to be large uh, to do that. And um, if you're not taking advantage of technology, you are not improving your productivity and, and, and it goes round. Whereas other countries are moving ahead, you're circling around down here and then the others just go up and up and up. So that's what you need to do. Now, how do you do that? Well, to do that, you need investment. Without investment, you cannot improve your productivity. You cannot help the workers. When I say that, people tell me I'm neoliberal. In fact, in fact, that's what I consider myself to be a lefty because what I just said, it will help the workers more than anyone else. You invest, you create jobs, workers, workers get the job, they have incentive to train, they get higher income. What better outcome for the workers? You need to encourage investment by employers and to encourage investment, you need to go through a series of reforms, and that's what it boils down to in the uh, reforms that Lucas and George and, and, and Eleni outlined before. I can list the most important that I, I consider here. You need to have, um, you need to have where is my, to accelerate the reduction of red tape for companies. Uh, you need a tax reform to reduce the tax wage and the tax burden on salaried work because most employees will be salaried employees. You need better protection of investors' rights and their ability to uh, reap the rate of return and use it quickly for reinvestment. You need a faster reduction in non-performing loans incentives for banks to give them loans. You need to attract foreign investment because domestic investment, domestic funds for investment are not enough given the state of the financial system. You need to improve the digitalization of the economy, electronic payment systems, the tax incentives, the, 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 the relationship between the public sector and the private sector through uh, digital uh, interaction, which is completely absent in Greece. And um, you can um, move in, the, in, in greener policies because the greening of the economy is more labor intensive. And... Um, it helps uh, 
fulfill Greece's obligations towards the Green Deal and the uh, sustainable uh, goals of the EU, sorry, of the United Nations. Um, the funds that were given, now the reason I say I'm very optimistic about the RRF, the recovery fund, is that it's given a lot of money for, the, uh, for, for climate, which is labor intensive, and therefore that should create jobs if it's used uh, correctly. Um, it's given um, emphasis on the digital transformation of Greece and um, improving the relations between the citizen and government interaction and simplifying red tape in the public sector. It's given money for training and um, education reform. And I'm pleased to say that education reforms have taken place on the basis of our recommendations uh, in the school system, starting with page three up. And um, we're looking forward next to university reform that will encourage more research. And um, once private investment is encouraged through foreign uh, direct investment and through the RRF funds, then you can do com in a complementary way with public sector investment infrastructure. So the two can combine and increase the productivity of the country. I stopped here because I promised you a short interaction, but I think I've used exactly my 10 minutes. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. That was very punchy and you made all of the relevant uh, points. We don't have much time uh, left and I'm going to try to uh, highlight uh, some of the questions that have been uh, coming in. Uh, perhaps uh, picking up on Chris's uh, theme about ownership and optimism uh, now for reform, I'm going to invite Eleni and George to uh, respond on, on this. Uh, it links with a question uh, from uh, Yorgos Karyogos. All the distinguished speakers said they are optimistic, but stressed the importance of accelerating reforms based on a wider political and social consensus, as well as ownership. Could you please refer to any concrete example of such consensus or, or ownership uh, signs among, Greek, among the Greek people at large and political parties in particular. Uh, and I'm going to invite uh, George Eleni uh, to, to comment. Perhaps if I could add to that, I could see the point that uh, there's an argument to be made that the present government is more committed to reform than recent uh, governments. But if we think in terms of beyond uh, governments, going back to what Lucas Papadimos was emphasizing in terms of uh, reform to uh, public administration, the educational system, the judicial system, etc., why should we be optimistic that reform in those areas might be, quote, owned more now than in the, in the past? Can I invite uh, George and then Eleni to respond to that, please? Okay, thank you very much, Kevin. I mean, this is this is the, the one million or the one billion dollar uh, question. Uh, you know, why why parties uh, would own the reforms of uh, of their opposing parties? I mean, this is this is why we talked about consensus. I mean, one of the reasons that the reforms did not proceed is that governments realized that. Uh, that they would uh, bear the, the political cost of, of reforms uh, by themselves. 
that the opposition of the time, whichever it was, uh, would would try to make political capital out of the of the of the cost of the reforms. So it would not support reforms, and that's uh, that 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 is why I I stress the need for census in advance, because reforms. Uh, that we talk about, that, that all of us talked about, are reforms that uh, that will take some time to bear fruit. They will not they will not be effective immediately. They will take they will require a, a, a number of years, both for implementation and for bearing results. And um, unless they are uh, they are agreed upon in advance, it will be very very difficult for those reforms. Not even not to succeed, of course, but, but even to be undertaken because governments realize that, uh, that they have a limited time in which to, to benefit from their policies or to, to see results from their policies and uh, we shall have a repetition of the past. Um, we had some reforms in the past which were, uh, which were implemented and, and worked. Uh, one, one is the educational reform that took place in uh, the, the beginning of the 2010 period uh, with the Diamandopoulou uh, reform, but then even this was um, abandoned when Syriza uh, became uh, came to power. So as long as we have polarization, uh, political polarization of the of the kind that we see in Greece even now, you know, political polarization, differences of opinion between the Mitsotakis government and the Tsipras government. Uh, reforms will require a lot of uh, a lot of, of of bravery from both um, okay both political parties. Thank you, George. Eleni. Thank you, Kevin. Well, um, I am optimistic. First, uh, uh, this government is determined to reform and has the funds. Finally, has the funds because reform reforms have a cost. And the funds are there. And the funds, if we don't reform, they are not going to be used. So we're not going to grow, etc. So in a sense, and, and, you know, consensus doesn't mean that we have to have 300 MPs voting for the same law. I mean, there is broad agreement among some of the parties in the parliament about many of these, uh, of these reforms. And the other thing which makes me... Um, um, optimistic is that the pandemic has changed a lot. I mean, it it uh, imposed the changes with respect to uh, digitalization of the economy, which we could not think before. I mean, me as a citizen, if you know how many things I can do from my computer, and uh, I don't have to move to all these uh, different um, public, um, um, you know, services, etc. Uh, if you know how civilized the system of vaccination has been in Greece and how successful. I mean, it may be that we have only, I don't know, 65% vaccinated because the other 35% do not agree for the moment. But this 65% that were vaccinated were, uh, I mean, we went through a system which was fantastic. Everything coming on our iPhone, on our uh, mobile uh, I mean, the, the service amazing. Today, I, I took my husband, who is a medical doctor, to be vac- to have the third shot. I mean, the the uh, platform opened tonight, yesterday night, and he could go and have the third shot this afternoon. So, I mean, there are changes happening, uh, and and uh, you know, 
we cannot expect that everybody will agree and everybody will push forward. But uh, I can see changes happening. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, uh, things will be, uh, would be much easier if everybody was agreeing. But I believe the majority of people, look at how many people agree um, that the euro is a good thing in Greece. I mean, again, we have reached something like 70% or more than 70%. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, I have to say to the guy who asked that um, I'm, I'm rather optimistic. Thank you. Thank you, Lenny, very much. Uh, I guess there's another question, uh, which is questioning the panel's optimism. And if I could uh, direct this to Lucas Papadimos, because it's on the Euro uh, zone. Uh, Alexandros Zakariadis uh, says that uh, regarding your arguments about the need for further fiscal integration, uh, why should we be optimistic that can be achieved? when the current structure of the Eurozone creates asymmetries that benefit particular states within the European Union? Why would those states give up their position of power by eliminating or decreasing the asymmetry through further integration? Why would it be in the rational interests of more powerful member states uh, to agree to the... Uh, uh, Lucas, if you could unmute yourself as well, please. If you could unmute yourself, sorry. If you could unmute yourself, please. As I noted earlier, this is not likely to be uh, a straightforward project uh, and straightforward objective to achieve. However, I'm cautious optimistic uh, for a number of reasons, including of what has happened uh, over the past two years as a result of the effects of the pandemic, both on public health and uh, on the euro area economy. I think the reason for adopting common policies, including some form, I'm very careful with the words, not the fiscal union, but some form of fiscal union, which will involve greater coordination of economic and fiscal policies, will be facilitated if it aims at addressing objectives that are considered to be European-wide and cannot be effectively dealt with at the national level. And I think the pandemic gave us uh, a very good example. But also back in 2011 and 2012, this was the depth of the euro area crisis. Nobody believed before these very dark moments of the euro area crisis that there would be a consensus for establishing a banking union a banking union including a single supervisory system and a single resolution fund. And it was, on one hand, the threats to the stability and viability of the, of the euro, and also the understanding, which sometimes the understanding becomes clearer under pressure, that the only way to address this type of uh, problems and tensions would be through, Europe, through establishing European kind institutions and adopting European-oriented uh, policies. So I think we, we have to, to see, I think I'm constantly optimistic because I think over time, I think there is greater understanding in a number of countries that what I would call European-wide objectives, broad objectives, not only economic, but also others such as defense and security. 
can be best achieved through a more integrated policy. Nevertheless, and I can see also that the political, well, we have to see that the answer to the question partly depends on political, on the changes in the political landscape. And there are elections that are not only the elections that recently took place, but also elections that are being scheduled for next year, as well as the economic conditions. So let me just conclude with a specific example. The adoption of the so-called uh, EU policy package, which incorporated the recovery fund, I think is a good example, a very good example why under certain conditions, decisions in the direction of a more common economic policy strategy and policy can be taken. I recall, by the way, that you remember this decision was taken after four days of negotiations of the leaders in Brussels because there were different views. And at the end, they agreed to establish the recovery fund. And let me say two words about this. What is important about this fund? Important is, first of all, the fact that it aims at strengthening long-term growth, but also addressing the consequences of the pandemic by introducing a new way of financing mm. uh, the support that will be given to member state by the issuance of common debt. Second, by agreeing that this common debt is going to be serviced by applying common taxes, not national taxes that will be then transferred to the union, but introducing taxes at a European wide level to service that debt. And third, an important thing is that the sources of this fund will be partly given in the form of grants and only in the form of loans. Okay. So these three elements are a good example that something important happened. However, I have, of course, to note that when the final decision was made, and in order to be reached that final decision, it was stressed that this is not a permanent arrangement, but is an arrangement that has been agreed and will be implemented in the context of the pandemic. Okay. However, I can give this as an example that this may provide a momentum that in the future, a basis for uh, making it more permanent if it is going to serve European-wide objectives and interests. Perhaps a long question. So I'm consciously optimistic without being unrealistic. <laughs> uh, thank you. I can see from the panel that uh, cautious optimism uh, is indeed uh, widespread. We're almost out of time. I wonder, uh, Chris, if you wanted to uh, have the uh, almost the last word. And uh, perhaps I would be particularly interested, Chris, uh, to learn whether you're um, expecting to be um, continuously engaged with the government uh, in the reform programme uh, going forward. Thank you. Well, well, that I don't know. It takes takes two to tango. Are <laughs> you on the dance floor? As they say in Latin in South America. Uh, I never managed to do the tango, by the way. My father was much better than me. <laughs> or at least that's what he claimed. Um, I, I mean, I'm optimistic, I, 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 and, and, um, and, and you know, I mean, we're economists. We we give our our time is our biggest uh, resource, and we invest our time only if we think that there is going to be a good rate of return, social or private. So, um, 
if uh, you know if, if I see one good 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 prospects, why not? But um, I, I want to go back actually to what Lenny and George commented about about political consensus. I mean, I, I mean there were a couple of questions about that, and and, and they're absolutely right. You know, you, you don't you don't expect. Greeks, you know, the, the left and the right, or you know, Mitsotakis and Tsipras to get up on a platform and shake hands and say, yes, we need to go forward, to move forward together. But from it, I mean, we have examples where reforms were owned and, and they were exceptionally successful. And my favorite example is the Hartz reforms in Germany in 2002-2005, uh, when they all came together completely unexpected, you know, just a couple of years earlier. Mm. of uh, in Munich, wrote a book saying, uh, "Is there any hope? Can Germany be saved?" And the answer is no, because the politicians will never come together to push reforms. And two, and two years later, they were signing the Hartz reforms that that brought that brought uh, Angela into power for the next sixteen years. <laughs> Although I'm sure that wasn't Schroeder's uh, intention, but but anyway, you know, it brought steady growth in Germany after that. What 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 I do hope, however, in Greece, when I say that. Um, there is going to be ownership of reforms. Is is for a strong government to have the ownership, and for the opposition not to uh, undermine, uh, to, to, for the opposition to, to 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 behave democratically. You know, not to undermine it by starting terrorist campaigns in the streets or demonstrations or trying to undermine things that were done. And I have to say, both both government and opposition have have been responsible in the last uh, couple of years. I mean, obviously. It's a good thing for the opposition to get up and um, and, and criticize and, and generate comment, but even even in response to to, to our report, although lots of critical things were written in the opposition press, there was nothing that showed that uh, that they would undermine it if the government wanted to uh, implement them to implement those reforms, and that's what I consider realistic ownership of reforms in uh, in, in Greece. I mean, in fact, America and Britain are not very different. And that's why uh, Trump has done so much damage to American democracy because he wasn't accepting democratic rules, and uh, and, and that's still going on in America. But but like in Britain, you know, there was strong strong opposition to Brexit within government. But once uh, there was, I mean, not only the referendum, but once uh, Boris Johnson was voted in with such a Huge majority in December last last year or two years ago. Although I do hope it was four years ago and he only had one more year left, but unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Then, then, then the rest of the of the political class just just followed along, you know, they, and see the, the best they could do to improve the situation within the constraints that that imposed. So that's what I mean by ownership. Okay. Also, the answers that say, you know, how do you expect this polarization to function in these circumstances? And that's how we hope that us. Okay. I always take great heart when uh, economists, especially such senior economists uh, here on the panel, uh, finish uh, talking the language of political science. So I think this is uh, always very reassuring uh, to the rest of us. Uh, I'm afraid we're out of time. Uh, let me uh, apologize to the many people who've been asking uh, questions, and I can see that they're coming, they've been coming in from different parts of the world. Uh, so forgive me that I wasn't able to uh, cover uh, so many of them. Uh, let me uh, remind you that uh, this um, 
discussion will be available as a podcast from the LSE Hellenic Observatory websites uh, in the next uh, few days. And also, let me remind you that uh, the discussion has been based on the publication of an ebook uh, with the same title as on your screen now, Greece and the Euro from Crisis to Recovery. And it is available for downloading from the websites of the LSE Hellenic Observatory, free of charge. Uh, thank you for uh, watching. Let me mention that you can find uh, future public events and seminars of the Hellenic Observatory uh, listed on our websites, and we look forward to you, you joining uh, those future events. But on your behalf, let me thank each of our speakers for the authority, uh, the breadth, and the clarity of what they've been um, telling us uh, today. I think it's given us a very good overview of where Greece is and where Greece, Greece may be in the medium to long term. My genuine thanks to each of our speakers, and thank you for watching.